Hello and welcome to our very first remote Damn Interesting Week podcast. We've been working very hard to get this set up for you. We hope that it works all right. If, of course, you hear any dogs or children in the background, please forgive us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. So our first link this week, I tried to find something that was just about as opposite of the present situation as could possibly be imagined. So here's one that combines nostalgia and just the most uninhibited celebration of triviality. This is from Collectors Weekly, which I assume is a publication for collectors, not people who collect any one particular thing, but just all collectors come together in the pages of Collectors Weekly to celebrate their love of collecting. But uh, this article is entitled Fun Delivered, World's Foremost Experts on Whoopee Cushions and Silly Putty Tell All. And this is uh, a long profile of Stan and Marty Tim, a married couple who are presumably America's foremost collectors of novelty items. And by novelty items, we mean those catalog bought items that, I mean, they still exist in some way. Certainly, you know, there's like Spencer's gifts and like Sky Mall catalogs, but the weird, the obscure, the presumably but dubiously useful. Uh, yeah, the, the gag the prank, gifts of America. The gag gifts, but also, you know, weird, um, they have in their collection a vibrating electric razor from the 30s which does not look at all safe and (laughs) it seems like it would have a very wild shakiness to it i would not want it anywhere near my face great photos in this article by the way but the novelties market is really america's consumerist id just (laughs) just splayed out right it's the inner child with too much money yeah the inner child the inner aspirant uh uh, the inner <laughs> nuisance, the inner lech, all loosed forth and in the form of these catalogs, which were modeled explicitly on, you know, like the Sears and Macy's catalogs. One of the sidelines in the article is a um, history of the Johnson Smith Company. He bought in bulk a massive supply of dollhouse toilets. So so just tiny dollhouse toilets. Just cornered the market right there. Yeah, and then just created gag after gag after gag involving small toilets. So he would have a <laughs> box that was like, you know, golfer's ninth hole break or something like that. And you open the, the box and it's a tiny toilet. But he did like a hundred variations on this gag just so he could push all of these tiny toilets that he had bought. He had to unload his inventory. Up at a song. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unload it, you say? Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Yep. <laughs> um, so are these guys still in business or is this a museum representation of this stuff or are they still selling these items? Johnson Smith Company only folded last year. Wow. 2019, oh they gosh. finally and officially folded. But, you know, the Sky Mall catalog is still around. Spencer's Gifts is still around in malls selling yep. what are essentially novelty items. You can see an array of impulse buys and the checkout lines of stores throughout the country. And, and of course, you know, 
there's a large gray area where um, pure novelty kind of shades into as seen on TV infomercials. Right. Convincing um, you that this is actually useful as opposed to just silly. Yeah. Sort of questionable conveniences. What's so interesting to me about the word novelty, too, is that its strictest definition means something that's new, right? So, of course, it would naturally seem to address things that are kind of like these new inventions that you're talking about. But to have it evolve into humorous gag, I'd be really interested in kind of the history of the etymology of that word. Yeah, nothing's older than fart jokes. I mean, that's ancient. You know what? And enduring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> they never get old. I think it nope. I think the kind of the slippage in the term comes from the fact that the novelty part of the catalog was the tip of the spear, you know, it was like this is sort of what we lead with are these, you know, kind of <laughs> wacky inventions. Mm. And then following behind all that stuff are the books of bad advice and practical jokes. But Stan and Marty Tim have tried to acquire as comprehensive a set of Johnson Smith offerings throughout the entire life of the catalog. There's also some <laughs> some horrible stuff about Johnson Smith at one point having offered to send pets by mail. Like live animals? Yeah, you could buy, I mean, this is nuts that this was ever allowed, but you could buy a baby alligator by mail. And one of the worst <laughs> jobs in the Johnson Smith Oof. company was working in the returns department uh, because <laughs> people would receive you know, a dead baby alligator by mail and then send it back. Give it another week in the system. Yeah, you've got a two-week decomposing baby (laughs) alligator that you got to scrape out of this box. Horrible. Hideous. Not the note I I wanted to end on. I don't know why uh, they folded. That seems so unexpected. (laughs) There are some companies that are keeping the novelty business alive from kind of like a somewhat vintage but also truly novel approach. Um, Have you guys ever heard of Archie McPhee's? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've bought stocking stuffers from them. Yeah, they're the ones that have like the crazy cat lady or the Einstein action figures. They've got pickle-scented car fresheners, bacon gum mints, like stuff that I think would fall squarely in this camp. Yeah, as long as people still have social obligations to buy each other cheap <laughs> gifts. That no one wants, I think that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you kind of la- I mean, you know, the value of a laugh is probably going to go up. I am long on laugh I'll value give you that. we're talking yeah. markets here, so. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Everyone at home, this is the opportunity for you to finally pilot that gag idea you've had. In the back of your head. (laughs) That's right. It's a seller's market for laughter. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I have chosen from History Today by Alexander Lee. There's a great article on a history of pizza. I'm sure a lot of us are eating it now, either through cheap delivery or making our own. I'm definitely eating my feelings this week. But this is a great article in History Today that just kind of does a quick overview. It's not the most in-depth, but that's fine. My attention span is totally shot these days. (laughs) (laughs) But we kind of look all the way back to Virgil's Aenid, where we start to see these early pizzas begin to appear, at least in recorded history, quote, thin wheaten cakes as platters for their meal. It sort of originated when Naples really began to balloon in population. All of this economic boom obviously created a lot of poverty for cities' inhabitants because that's kind of what happens, right? And the most abject of these inhabitants were known as the Lazzaroni because their ragged appearance resembled that of Lazarus. Mm. Mm. Dead guy. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. The living dead. Um, So basically because they were always rushing 
thrashing about in search of work. They needed food that was cheap and easy to eat, so pizza. And the best thing about it is that these could be cut to meet the customer's budget or appetite, right? So they were usually described as being disgusting, especially by foreign visitors who didn't want to mix with that riffraff. Samuel Morris, our beloved inventor of the telegraph, described pizza as, quote, a species of the most nauseating cake covered over with slices of pomodoro or tomatoes and sprinkled with little fish and black pepper and I know not what other ingredients. It altogether looks like a piece of bread that has been taken reeking out of the sewer. Well, it's mm. good to know that like anchovies are like super, super early on ingredients. Like that's not a, an abomination that came about recently. That was early right? pizza. They've been polarized from the start, yeah. but they've still hung around. I, for the record, am pro-anchovy, by I, the way. I'm an anchovy fan. Too, although more in salad than in pizza, which already seems to me to be sufficiently salty without the addition. <laughs> right. Yeah, getting the ratio of an anchovy pizza right is definitely an art, and I have bungled that on some of my own DIY attempts, but yeah. super underrated in my opinion. But basically, what happened is after Italian unification, King Umberto I and Queen Margherita visited <laughs> Naples in 1889. Yeah, you know where this is going. And they basically got really sick of all of the super fancy highfalutin French dishes that they were being served every day. They wanted to try some local specialties and one of these, you know, local pizza makers cooked three sorts of pizza. One had the lard, cacio cavallo, and basil. So lard, horse cheese, and basil. I'm sorry, horse milk cheese, I should clarify. Um, <laughs> another was made with this cecinelli white bait. I have not Googled that, but I also kind of don't want to. And a third was made with tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil. Which do you think was the queen's favorite? Well, I'm going to guess the, t- the tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. So that's why we call it the pizza margarita. And it has been that way ever since the queen deemed it her very favorite. So once she actually gave her seal of approval, not only on this pizza, but pretty much for all of them, it started to elevate pizza from being sort of like food for the poor masses into something that the royal family could enjoy. And now it became a source of Italian pride. So it really wasn't until... 1889 that it rose to the ranks where pasta and polenta had enjoyed that high lofty status. And then once it started to hit America with Italians emigrating into America, that's when it really kind of found its second wind. A really interesting factoid from this article, uh, shortly after the U.S. entered the Second World War, there was a Texan named Ike Sewell who wanted to get new customers to his Chicago pizzeria by offering a more hearty version of the dish with that deep, thick crust and more abundant toppings. So (laughs) Chicago deep dish, that was a Texan invention. Actually Texan. That's good to know. Really? Yep. I'm I'm sure Chicago, uh, they like to bury that lead whenever they're touting their uh, regional (laughs) version of it. I mean, and technically it did happen in Chicago, but it was a Texan to figure that out. That's right. Chicagoans uh, buying them. I guess I Mm -hmm. need to rescind some comments I've made about deep dish pizza throughout the years. Um, you're not a fan. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're you going still dislike it, you know. <laughs> if you're going for a deeper pizza, I feel the Detroit style is a lot tastier than the Chicago style. That's Sh- just me. Mm. I have a love-hate relationship because my first job was actually at a Domino's Pizza, and mm. part of the reason that I took that job was because I didn't like pizza. And I figured wherever I work, whatever food service place I work, I'm going to end up hating what's there. So I might as well pick something I already hate and then it won't ruin anything for me. But it turned out that the thing I really didn't like very much was the tomato sauce. That was the part that was was kind of ruining it for me. And when you work there, of course, you have access to all the ingredients and everything. So we made our own 
recipes that you couldn't possibly order over, over the phone, we would make a hot wing pizza where you would run the hot Ooh. wings through the oven and cook them. And then the sauce on the pizza would be a mix of a ranch packet and the hot wing hot sauce. <laughs> and then you would Whoa. you would pick the chicken off the bones, put all the hot wing chicken on, put a ton of cheese on it. And then you'd run it through the oven a second time. And it was, I fell in love with pizza. And later sort of expanded like into the margarita pizzas. I like those. I like things with the garlic and the white sauce. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. The tomato sauce has not always been the default ingredient in pizza because what happened is in the 1950s when there was a lot of change, fridges and freezers became more common. So the demand for convenience foods began to grow, which is how frozen pizza was developed. So it, changes had to be made to the recipe. So instead of being scattered with big slices of fresh tomato, the base was then smothered with a smooth tomato paste, which was designed to prevent dough from drying out during oven cooking. And they also had to develop new cheeses to withstand freezing. So the pizza that you just described, kind of, you know, coming up with a different sauce, and often some pizzas have no sauce at all, even though some people like to say, oh, it's a flatbread. All pizza. I'm going to go ahead and just say yeah, it's all pizza I'm... because the tomato sauce thing was really just based on frozen cook at home development. Well, then I'm going to call myself a traditionalist. I think I, I can elevate myself above everybody else then with that information. <laughs> I support your level of inventive <laughs> smugness, 100%. I'm pretty sure that wing pizza you were describing, uh, you might be owed some residuals for that, Jennifer, because I'm pretty sure that's an official menu item at it this point. It probably is. I mean, you get they stuck in a restaurant with the same ingredients every day. You're going to start getting creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a bummer, huh? Welcome to innovation and novelty, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. So let's take a uh, deep dive into inventions that were way ahead of their time. This is from Ooh. Ross Pomeroy at Real Clear Science. Basically, the instigation of this article was the fact that a museum has now opened called the Kotsanas Museum of Ancient Greek Technology, run by this one guy, Kostas Kotsanas. He's Greek. And he it's sort of his passion to illuminate the world of all of these inventions in ancient Greece that we don't really know about. That basically they were super clever, they invented these things, and then the civilization fell and we sort of lost knowledge of all these inventions and reinvented them ourselves hundreds of years later. But apparently there's evidence that they had created some really cool stuff. So in this museum, they've got either working models or sort of videos explaining how a lot of these things work. One of them is Plato's alarm clock. This is Ooh. the Plato. It's a series of kind of urns, one on top of the other. And so the top one has a small hole in the bottom that has sort of like a known drip rate. So you pour in as much water as you want. You know how slowly it's going to come out. It comes into the next urn, which has an axial pipette which is apparently a known thing, but it's it, effectively it's like a straw within a bigger straw. And so the water has to go up and then down again to get back out. And as it fills up the outer straw, once it hits that tipping point of getting over the top of the inner straw, you get siphoning physics going on. And so it sucks all of the water out at once. And as it goes into the third urn, it passes this whistle. And that's how the alarm goes off and it wakes up whoever's in the room. And it basically uses nothing but physics and water. And it was a working alarm clock that he used. Huh. And so, you know, that one's kind of cool. They had another one called the Flying Pigeon of Architas. And they don't really explain what this might be useful for. But it's the hollow, quote, pigeon, which is just sort of a solid balloon-shaped item is attached to a sealed pot of water. You boil the water, the steam pressure builds up, and eventually the pigeon goes flying off like a rocket. It's a but, novelty. Yeah, but like a lot of the items in here are, are steam-powered, Then that's just something that they had really leaned into, I guess. They had a guy named Heron of Alexandria invented automatically opening temple gates 
These were again using steam. They had this whole big fire built under the temple. And when enough water had accumulated, it would weight it down and the doors would open in the morning. So nobody had to go open the doors, I guess, for the people to come into the temple. This same guy, apparently he invented a vending machine and like a primitive medical syringe. I mean, and this is what we think of as ancient Greece spans 8th century BC all the way up to 6th century CE. So it's guys in the year 200 inventing vending machines and opening doors and stuff. So, you know, I mean, they even had basically the first example of a robot. It was the automatic servant of Phylon. And the automatic servant's job was to fill a wine cup with the desired amount of watered downness. It was sort of traditional of you get your cup of wine and then you decide your personal preference, how much water you want to add to it. So it was basically kind of like a little mannequin guy with a hand and you put your wine cup in it and the weight of the cup lowers it. So the wine comes out and then somehow there's this complicated mechanism. They have a video that explains it where at some point the wine stops and the water starts going in and then you pull your cup away when you've had as much water as you want. Like you said, it was a novelty. It was like a party trick. This super rich guy was like, oh. Instead of pouring wine for somebody, I'm going to have my manservant do it. <laughs> so, yeah. they, you know, they had a lot of time on their hands. They invented some cool stuff, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes I, I feel like we do what we can to preserve, you know, the supposed great art mm-hmm. of these past civilizations. But I do want to see more of like what was like the tacky, expensive nonsense that people, <laughs> you know, would blow their uh, their drachmas on right. back in the day, you know, like right. the gold toilets of yesteryear. You know, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to like retroactively mythologize these people. You want to realize like, you know what? They had fart jokes and they had stupid things that were totally useless, but also kind of funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like expensive gizmos, you know, like sharper image type stuff. Brookstone. Right. The, the sky mall of ancient <laughs> Greece. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's the uh, the museum supposedly has over 300 working models of these things and then a lot more that they just couldn't manage to rebuild because it would be too much steam, I guess. I don't know. They didn't have the technology anymore. <laughs> too much steam. Yeah, but, they, uh, but it seems like a very cool museum. And, uh, you know, if you're ever in Greece, go check it out. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay, this is from Forbes. It is by Brian Koberlein. And it's bad news, unfortunately. Um, oh, some bad astronomical news. Astronomers rule out a theory of everything. Can they do so, that? I mean, like, I don't know. I, I feel like the, you get a lot of these proclamations where we're like, oh, we've now we know. And I'm like, do you? Like, in another 50 well, years, you might say, never mind. And the headline might be a, a little bit juiced. You know, it, it's not saying astronomers rule out any theory of everything, it is they're ruling out a particular theory of everything. Okay, so they've Um, shot down one model. Yes, yes. One that involves a type of a theoretical particle known as axions. So what's happening here is that astronomers trying to figure out what's going on with that so-called dark matter, which we can't see and we can't prove the existence of, but we see that galaxies and galactic clusters behave in a way that suggests the presence of more matter than can be seen. So thus they theorize that uh, maybe there's some kind of dark matter that is generating this additional gravity or these additional gravitational effects that cannot be accounted for with the visible matter that's present. Okay, so what are axions? Now, this is the point where I, as a normal person, have to go down a Wikipedia hole, right? <laughs> right. To try you and understand. understand. Mm-hmm. 
What's going on? Okay, so axion is a hypothetical elementary particle postulated by the Peke-Quinn theory in 1977 to resolve the strong CP problem in quantum chromodynamics. Okay. Oh, of course. Right. right. So what's the strong CP problem? Well, the strong CP problem is sometimes regarded as an unsolved problem in physics and has been referred to as the most underrated puzzle in all of physics. Mm. So there's a lot of people who study this problem is like not you know people are not giving this problem it's due this is a very interesting problem that more of you should pay attention That's right. to Why is everyone mm -hmm. not more interested in this than I am <laughs> yeah. It is a puzzling question in particle physics that asks why does quantum chromodynamics seem to preserve CP symmetry which is charge plus parity or charge conjugation parity symmetry that's the combination of charge conjugation symmetry and parity symmetry. I got to tell you, I don't so, I don't know why more people are not focused on this. It definitely so, I'm intrigued. <laughs> why is that preserved? Okay, to understand that, we need to understand what quantum chromodynamics is. In theoretical physics, quantum chromodynamics is the theory of the strong interaction between quarks and gluons, the fundamental particles that make up composite hadrons, such as the proton, neutron, and pion. Okay, so... <laughs> so listen. now hold on a second. So all of those that you just named, those are particles that we know exist. It's only the axion that was hypothetical, and now you're saying that the axion is not real. The axion was proposed as a way to resolve this problem. Now, as I understand theoretical physics, one of the things you do is you see behavior that you can't really fully account for. And then you you say, OK, well, now that we've theorized the existence of this particle, we have to come up with some crazy experiments that could verify whether or not that particle exists. And I guess... I would like to see us using this more in our daily lives, essentially, <laughs> this method <laughs> of inquiry and investigation in which we find a problem, we theorize the existence of something that would explain that problem, and then devote our time and attention to trying to verify whether or not that could be real. For example, any disputes with a significant other a good way to approach those, any differences in opinion that are causing stress in the household, particularly during a period of lockdown where options for <laughs> mm -hmm. simply leaving the household do not exist. Like, so you're imagining like the presence of it, like a jerky on particle that's floating around our house and is accounting for the behavior that isn't otherwise accounted for. Right. So now we have to come up with an experiment to uh, prove or disprove the existence of the jerky on invisible particle. Yes. But until such time as you have the tools to do that experiment, because I mean, after all, it does take a very long time to build a large hadron collider. Right. You can mm -hmm. just kind of revel in like the theoretical uh, beauty of what you've created as a way of resolving any gaps in your current explanatory power, right? Right. You're like, so, oh, why did you leave all the dishes here? Oh, you know, there's just a, a, an abundance of jerky on particles today. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> or, or, or you would say, well, you know, some say that the reason I left the dishes in this state. <laughs> right. oh, we'll have to do further testing. That's right. Current you know, there, scientific there, theory. There's a very beautiful theory out there that explains so much and is elegant 
orient and uh, maintains our current understanding while expanding it to the realms of the unknown. I think it'd be great to one day investigate whether or not it holds up. But for now, there's so much beauty in the theory. That's right. Let's Let's just just enjoy that. Rest back and and look at this beautiful, beautiful construction that we've made and not focus on (laughs) the practical (laughs) uses of it. And in the meantime, there's a lot of universities, a lot of theoretical physicists out there and only a very limited set of means by which you can actually observe uh, subatomic phenomena. So you you got to spin some theories. But I think that Mm -hmm. in summation, I think what you're saying this article says is suck at axions. Like they're not the thing. Yeah, axions are not the thing. You should turn in your PhD, never set foot in this hallowed halls of physics again. (laughs) In as much as the theory was a good excuse to kick back, look at some x-ray signals, we all got a lot out of it, I think. All right. Well, that's good at least. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. How are you guys doing with your sense of time these days? Oh, it's messed up. I don't know what day yeah. it is. I'm, yeah. I have no idea what day it is, yeah. Well, the BBC has a wonderful in-depth article in their future segment called How to Escape the Tyranny of the Clock. This is a really long, wonderful piece about sort of the history of clock time in particular. And it's a bit editorial and opinionated, especially as it connects clock time as a sort of recent commodification and monetization due to the industrial age. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we all know that we've got these 24-hour circadian rhythms, right? Like if we were to live in a cave, we would eventually just sort of, even with the lack of light, kind of move towards this natural rhythm of time that basically we have been perfecting over human history history for millennia. Mm -hmm. And we all know that, you know, time pressure and time scarcity and thinking of time really as a resource is something that has detrimental effects on our mental health and even our physical health. It can cause us to drive faster. It can lead to chronic stress, poor food choices and that kind of thing. But this article does a great way in kind of framing this in the context of we've only been working with clock time for like 100 years. It's a pretty relatively recent invention and convention by which we've all kind of been held to, hence the word tyranny and escape in the headline of this article. And, you know, having a sense of time, it's not like we're trying to abolish or say time is bad because it definitely serves a purpose, especially when we take it from like a philosophical sense of self, right? Like to have a sense of personal identity and memories, those are all time stamped, even if it's not a perfect time stamp, but we have a sense of this is when I was at this phase of my life or when I was a kid or lived here. And those kinds of things definitely have value in terms of our self-identity and how our systems function on a biological level. But going back to even the invention you were talking about, Jennifer, in terms of Plato's clock, time measurement is thought to have begun with the Sumerians. They were the ones to kind of divide their day into units of 12 and they used water clocks, possibly close to whatever Plato's alarm clock was Mm -hmm. like. Uh, This article doesn't totally go into what those looked like, but later on, the Egyptians used obelisks to also divide the day into 12 units. Then we were starting to get into things like sundials, candle clocks, mechanical pendulum clocks. And by the 17th century, we were able to keep time within about a 10-minute plus or minus range with watches. But it wasn't until the 1800s, as railroads spread across the United States, that people began to think about regulating time to international standards. So in the early 19th century, every city in the U.S. had its own time zone. So there were about 300 local sun times in use, (laughs) 
which, you know, caused a few problems when it came to running trains with a reliable timetable. Mm -hmm. So in 1883, time zones were introduced in the U.S. And then the international 24-hour time zone system with the adoption of Greenwich Meridian Time that we all are kind of aligned to now was rolled out pretty soon thereafter. So now that we have these times, it's been important to synchronize things like financial markets, global positioning systems, communication networks, as well as the railroads and things like that. But it was during the Industrial Revolution that we began to be ruled by the clocks we built, according to this article, because (laughs) clock time was a way to organize large groups of people. So it wasn't as much about managing individual time, but collective time. Right, managing right? crowds, yeah. So, yeah, managing crowds, but especially with the Industrial Revolution, a way to synchronize factory workers to coordinate the arrival of raw materials for the sake of optimizing production. Mm-hmm. But basically, once we had clocks that were used in this fashion, it really changed our relationship with it, both from like a collective and individual level. So a quote here saying, workers subjected to the tyranny of the clock soon started playing their boss's game and insisted on fixed shift times, on shortening the workday and on connecting monetary compensation to work time measured by the clock. Because before this, work was done basically on however long it takes you to get the thing done right, that's how long it takes. And so that's where we started get some tensions between, for example, there were railway workers in Cairo at the start of the 20th century violently objected to attempts to introduce chronometers into staff toilets. That awfully, you know, that sounds <laughs> well, familiar in terms of like yeah. workers, you know, basically saying like we needed to be beholden to a digestive system sense of time as opposed to an artificially imposed mechanical clock sense of time. Although that's still kind of a thing now too, like mandated restroom breaks or having to skip a break based on, you know, the whims of a boss or HR policy. You know, for everything that's happening right now with us, it may feel a little bit disorienting to be uprooted from our sense of at least normal clock time, the way that we've been acclimated. But this may be a really nice opportunity for us to start experimenting with adapting to natural patterns, like waking with the sun or eating when, you know, your body feels like it, as opposed to like, I have to take my lunch hour at this time, things like that. Yeah, get back to your roots, you know? You're trying to tell me that we acted against our own bodies and nature just for the sake of generating (laughs) generating surplus value for capital you know all i'm saying it's a great time to kind of reevaluate how and why the things we've done may no longer be serving us and may be an opportunity for optimizing in healthier ways not just to boost someone else's bottom line as long as it doesn't come along with and now we have to be beholden to a farming schedule because because we're all needed to make gardens in the backyard. Because I got to tell you, I don't have that skill. I cannot grow things. It's not going to happen. So if if it does, we just say goodbye to me because I'm not able to grow anything. Well, who knows what kind of new hobbies were going to be developed during this very interesting Mm -hmm. time. But there have been tons of studies showing that the quiet boredom of non-scheduled time is a very, very rich time for the you know monkey mind to basically come up with wild theories and ideas that could not really be born under stricter situations. Yeah, it's good for us. Exactly. <sighs> that, I just had to exhale on that one. Felt good. Right? Just <laughs> let the yes, feelings out. We, we'll take whatever silver linings we can get and maybe being unmoored from clock time can be one of them. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, I have a quick one here right at the very end. This is a distance viewing of the art world. You know, obviously mm-hmm. none of us, we may appreciate art, but we are definitely not part of the world of art speculation. Oh no no I I'm I'm extremely wealthy. Was You're that a high ever roller. clear? 
<laughs> Did I never say? Tell no, you guys nobody, about that? Oh, we didn't pick up on that. Sorry. <laughs> oh my God, I have so much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm on the art market. I'm up at Sotheby's. I'm at, I'm at Christie's. <laughs> All right. Well, then, then you, I'm sure, probably know the uh, central subject of this article because it means he cheated you out of several million dollars. What? But what? Of course he did. Yeah, yeah. He cheated basically everybody. This, the article's written by a guy named Kenny Schachter, who is actually part of the story. He is a very wealthy art critic who was among the many, many, many people who were cheated out of millions by the young and dashing Inigo Philbrick. And like all of the dashing, but also kind of evil, but also fascinating kind of characters that all end up being con men, he was that character. And this article sort of plays up his personality as part of the con and how he got away with all the things that he did for so long. Basically, he was not an artist himself. He found promising artists and then used his connections to get them into major galleries because that that was part of the fascination for me was how little of it actually revolves around the art. It's basically just a separate financial world. Mm-hmm. Once you get into a major gallery, at that point, everything is a paper transaction. You, quote, mm-hmm. buy the work of art for a million, then you sell it to someone else for a million and a half based largely on the fact that it, quote, sold for a million in the first place. And you pocket the difference, having never actually paid the auction house, never touched the painting. There's like entire storage companies developed just for holding expensive works of art that literally no one ever intends to hang on a wall. They're just sort of passing the paperwork from one person to another making money. It's such a racket. I mean, every time one of these sort of like high art world con men stories comes out, I am just tickled pink because even like you said, just the act of getting your work in a gallery is so subjective and so dependent on who you know, what connections you have. It's so untethered from what some might think is the actual relative value or legitimacy of quote unquote art. Right. Yeah, And there is a spectrum of folks who are like passionate about the art versus the money. You know, several of the gallery owners, obviously, they appreciate the art itself to a certain Mm -hmm. degree. And they've tried to tamp down on this kind of speculation by only letting very exclusive clientele in the doors. And you sort of get vetted as someone who is either very passionate about the work and is going to hang it on your walls, or at the very least, that you are smart enough to hang on to it for a reasonable time Mm -hmm. so that you're not inflating the bubble too fast. Because the first time Mm -hmm. a promising young artist's name doesn't bring in the money, that name is dead and you have to find a new artist because it's all reputation. Right. You know, it's not about, I like this painting, it's does everybody like this painting. (sighs) Exactly. And so anyway, because of that exclusivity, one of Inigo's tricks was he would hobnob with these rich, famous celebrities And he would basically sucker in these famous actors to act like they were interested in art. They would get invited to the gallery based on their celebrity. And then they wouldn't even use their own money. He would give them the money and then give them a cut once the painting was sold. And they literally were just being actors as their job. They'd go in and act like, yes, I'm the actual actor and I'm interested. And it was just, it's crazy. And of course, you know, a lot of this is gross because even as the guy writing this article is sort of exposing this con man... He's sort of bragging. I mean, there's definitely an element of like, look at this crazy thing we did together. You know, drugs and prostitutes and alcohol, of course, and flying around on charter jets. The guy apparently had this habit of screaming Inigo, Inigo, Inigo to himself in the shower every morning. Like that was, you know, he would pump himself up. Yeah. And like, you know, and at the same time, you know, you you look at this and you're like, oh, this whole market is based on ego, though. So, of course, that's going to be a factor. Yeah. And they're all fundamentally children. Like one of the photos in the article was captioned roughhousing in Hong Kong. And it was just two guys like slap fighting in an incredibly expensive hotel room. 
And it's like, these are just frat boys. Like, there is nothing special about these people. They just have conned everybody into thinking they have. So, and of course, up to this point, literally everything we've talked about has been legal. It only got illegal when he basically refused to pay galleries and was forging bank statements and did a bunch of other stuff. Long story short, he uh, disappeared with a lot of people's money. And he still actually is sort of around. The author of the article claims to be getting DMs through Twitter from, like, anonymous accounts that are very clearly him. And he says even now the guy's, like, trying to restore his reputation. He's making arguments like, I was only doing what everyone did. And if they could have gotten scammed by me, then they shouldn't have been in the game anyway. You know, they're too weak. And it's just like, all right, you're awful. And there's the world is full of awful people. And, and don't yeah. speculate on yeah. art because all you're doing is hurting the artists. And... And the feeding into this totally ego and reputation-driven market upon which it just thrives and necessitates. Yeah. Well, and they named a lot yeah. of artists in there where I'm like, oh, I know that artist's name. Like, these aren't just totally nobody. These are people who are generally regarded as really good artists. And I've seen some of their stuff and say, well, I like that. Why have they gotten suckered in to this whole secondary scheme? And apparently that's just the only way to do it. I don't know. Yeah, yep. I mean, the uh, whole thing is a that, racket. When you're a lot of a lot of kids, when they're first, you know, putting the brush to canvas or putting their fingers to the clay or whatever it is, right. putting their minds to the video installation. I don't know. Right. <laughs> they're just they're dreaming of a future where um, the works of their heart and of their mind are just used as a storage for again surplus value. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Just hold it in a in a storage right. unit. That's the highest compliment anyone yeah, can pay. Sur- surplus value. Yeah, That's please, right. please. I long to be part of a well-balanced billionaire portfolio. <laughs> I long to be part of a, a robust strategy for minimizing uh, my personal taxes uh, the year right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad that you joined us. We're glad that we were able to come together and put this together for you. We hope that uh, the coming weeks are a little bit more relaxing, maybe a little bit less interesting in certain ways and more interesting in the old-fashioned ways we used to appreciate. Uh, But we hope that you'll come back and keep listening, and we're glad that we could bring you hopefully a little bit of joy during these times. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.